The Uncover Up Conspiracy Podcast is about to record their 100th episode. To celebrate this momentous occasion, Professor Radke will be getting a tattoo on his arm. And to thank you for getting us here, you can have a say in which tattoo he gets. Two designs will be posted to the Instagram feed, at The Uncover Up, and whichever one receives the most likes by January 15th, 2023, will be the one that gets inked. And now, on with the show. This is all a test. Hello and welcome to the 99th episode of The Uncover Up. My name is Dr. Lee Kunle, and with me, as always, for all 99 episodes, is Nathan Radke. I haven't missed a single one. You haven't missed a single one, unlike me. I've missed a bunch. You've missed some. I think this is like my 89th episode. Ah, well, welcome to your 89th. (laughs) Welcome to your 99th. War is hell. Yep. I'm jumping right into it. Right? Okay, good. Yes. Getting right in. War is hell. Okay. Now, you and I haven't been to war. No, uh, thankfully. You and I, I think, both know people who have been to war. Yep. And you and I both have relatives who served in wartime. Yep. In fact, I have a, a journal from my grandfather who was a pilot in the Second World War on the wrong side of, of, of that war. but He might have bombed my grandfather. Well, and, and my other grandfather, who was British. So yeah. one side of my family is German, the other is British. And in his journal, he talks about precisely how miserable the whole experience is, how he doesn't want to have anything to do with it, how he wishes there wasn't any war. And it's not the kind of thought patterns that I'd associate with fighter pilots and, you know, people who are professional military people. But I think you're right. Like, yeah, war sucks and most people don't want anything to do with it. I mean, from what I understand, your grandfather just really wanted to fly. Yeah, And that's what that true. meant was he's going to be in the Luftwaffe. Yep, yep, yep. Despite war being hell, over the years, we as humans have gotten better and better at creating a more hellish situation. Yeah. We're talking about weaponry today. We're talking about this idea of the super soldier. For a lot of human history, the only weapons that we had were clubs, uh, rocks. Maybe we started getting into things like bows and arrows. Mm-hmm. And all of these things have the same property. They're all designed to extend the violence that we're capable of with our body. Yeah. Like we can throw hands at each other and fist fight, but if we got sticks, then we can reach further and we can hit harder. And and here begins the long history of weapon and military technology. Yeah. Let's keep hitting further. Let's keep hitting harder. And we moved up to things like swords and stuff like that. But you've got some some examples of some of the cleverness that we've come up to fairly early on in human civilization. Well, I think it's quite interesting to ask, why do certain empires suddenly emerge historically? And sometimes you look at these empires that emerge historically, and they they seem to come out of absolutely nowhere, and they take over, you know, a quarter of the earth. I'm thinking of... Genghis Khan and the Mongols. I'm thinking Classic of, example. I'm thinking of the Assyrians. Uh, these are groups that, you know, they were in kind of a small village for what might as well be centuries. And then suddenly they seem to take over the world. All of a sudden they're everywhere. And one of the interesting aspects of military and imperial histories is the role of military technology in making this possible. 
And what often happens is one group will discover something that gives them a military advantage that other people don't have. And it neutralizes other factors such as the size of a population, you know, or how willing they are to fight. The classic example, it was funny that you and I both uh, discovered it off air, we, we both had this in our minds, is the stirrup. <laughs> when I first learned about this, I remember learning about this in undergrad, it was not the thing that I would associate directly with an advance in military technology. I mean, of course, as, as Nathan already said, you think about weapons replacing other weapons, and those new weapons are bigger, stronger, harder, faster, whatever. But there's often aspects of military technology that really give a group a real strategic advantage. The stirrup uh, allowed those groups who discovered it to fight on horseback. Yeah, because now you can brace yourself. You can fire a bow and arrow from a horse yeah. and with some degree of accuracy. Well, I, I, I had thought of a little thought experiment um, that I, I want our listeners to engage in. So Nathan is standing in full battle gear, let's say, of a medieval knight. Okay. And full Lee, plate mail. Yeah, he's got plate mail. He's got a big helmet on. He's got some kind of ridiculously long sword. And, uh, and a shield. And Lee is sitting on a horse with a, like a long spear. And Lee is going to come galloping towards Nathan. But here's the thing. Lee is not sitting on a saddle. He is just sitting directly on the horse. Lee is uncomfortable. Lee is uncomfortable. And unsteady. And, and, and now the question is, so here he comes. Here comes Lee galloping at Nathan. And uh, he's, got, he's got his lance under his arm, and he's going to try and, and stab Nathan in the chest. What happens? Well, I feel like I'm going to plant myself. I'm going to be pretty heavy. I'm going to have this plate armor that's designed to repel lances. You're going to hit me, and it's going to knock you off your horse. That's right. And then I'm going to stomp the crap out of it. <laughs> that's exactly right. So just getting a horse and sitting on top of it isn't much of a military advantage until you... As you said earlier, you know, you, you add the stirrups, you're able to brace yourself. And now if we change the example, I've got a saddle with stirrups. Now, now you're going to skewer me like a kebab. Exactly. <laughs> and all this while sitting on a large animal that can run faster than humans, that has a lot more stamina than humans when it comes to running, and that gets me a bit out of the way of the battlefield just a couple of feet higher than than the other belligerents. And this is a massive degree of superiority in the ancient world. And those people who got the stirrups first, they were able to conquer all their neighbors. And this is really the template, I think, for how military technology works. Those who get it first have an incredible advantage. And even today, you look at the countries that are political powerhouses, they're not always the ones with the largest population. China and India have the largest populations on Earth, but the, uh, but the United States of America has the most advanced weaponry. Okay, I don't want to reduce everything in history or in contemporary politics down to who has like bigger guns and better weapons. No, but it is an aspect of it. It's a big aspect of it and one that I think lends a logic to the story we're going to tell today about super soldiers and about 
the kind of internal logic that got us to the point that we're at today, where we're continuously trying to improve weapons, to improve armament, to improve defenses, to improve soldiers. And one of our listeners actually has been asking us to do this episode. And so here That's it right. is. Hi, Caleb. This one's for you. Caleb, this episode is for you. All right. So as you say, we're, we're getting better and better with our weapons. And we've been doing this for a long time. Like 400 years BCE, the Chinese invented a repeating crossbow. Okay. Like a cross between uh, a crossbow and a machine gun. Yeah, I was going to say, it sounds a little machine gun-like. Like yeah. Bang, 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 bang. Except since it was a crossbow, it would be more like twang, 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 twang. By 600 AD, the, the Byzantine Empire was using flamethrowers. It's amazing. A horrifying weapon. Yeah. Like ancient and medieval battlefields would have been terrifying places, brutal places. Yeah. But nothing compared to the modern battlefield. The modern ba battlefield, of course, shows up at the beginning of the 20th century in World War I. That's when we really see the transformation from uh, the battlefield of a, a place of individual uh, skill and individual courage and bravery into what basically just becomes a giant meat grinder fed by human bodies. Right, right, yeah. Our topic, of course, is super soldiers, and this is a very contemporary notion. When I think, let me think, when I think of super soldiers in popular culture, just so that we're all on the same page, I think of, like, characters like Iron Man. Yeah, or, Captain America. Yeah, okay, that's interesting. I wouldn't have thought of Captain America. How does he get his powers? He's drugged up to become this powerful World War II super soldier. Okay. And, and Iron Man doesn't have any superpowers, but he's got a great suit. And he's really rich. And Well, that's it. And that's why he's got the great suit. So, so this is what we're talking about, is this kind of new kind of soldier using the most advanced weaponry and, you know, some kind of other augmentation to make them better. Well, and, and we need that because of what we have been able to turn the battlefield into. Yeah. We have been able to use mechanization and industrialization. Like I was saying with World War I, now the battlefield is a place filled with machine gun bullets and shrapnel and poison gas and massed artillery fire. Yeah. Like, how is a human being... I mean, you're a human being. I think so, yeah. And human Nathan beings... Nathan is a robot. Yeah, but, but you're a human being. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And so as such, you're sort of squishy in parts. Yep. You've got exposed... Ever more so, sadly, as yeah. I get older. <laughs> Every day, a little squishier. You've got exposed, like, organs. You stand upright. Yep. And so, like, your intestines Like, chest is, like, all there to just be, like, it's disemboweled. And yeah. I mean, you even wear your genitalia on the outside of your body. Not just me, though. No, to no, be fair. I mean, yeah. Not just, yeah. Well, <laughs> this is just a Lee only thing. That's right. Uh, like a lot of humans do that. About half the humans have their genitalia on the outside of the body. We are extremely vulnerable. And then you take a human being, a squishy human being, and you put them into this new modern battlefield. And I came across this extraordinary sentence in a DARPA report that we're going to get into later. Yeah. But I want to talk about the sentence now. Okay. Because I think it sets up this conversation. The battlefield is a voracious place. Well, the battlefield is voracious. It's hungry. It's, it, it's true. It's as though it gobbles you up, gobbles yeah. up humans. And, um, I mean, it's hungry for human limbs. Yeah. It's hungry for organs. It's hungry for lives. Yeah. Yeah. I, I remember looking up some of the pictures of the famous battles in World War I and being stunned at 
seeing actual like they're not just corpses but they'll be like parts of skeletons just in the battlefield lying next to the people who are currently still alive and doing the shooting yeah it's if you haven't experienced it like we haven't i think it's pretty much unimaginable to try to even conceive of what a situation like that is yeah and the problem is not only are we squishy but we're also i mean lee is anyway an intelligent creature who is aware oh, of I his own meant, mortality. I, I thought you meant I'm especially squishy. Well, I mean, but, uh, well is, that's a compliment. Lee is particularly squishy. Um, but you're, like, we also know that we're going to die, which maybe makes us unusual as far as animals go. Oh. So well, uh, not only so that we're squishy and we're easy to kill, we're afraid of dying, we're yeah. aware of our mortality, and we can also struggle with killing other human beings. Right. And you're right to to bring this up at the beginning because I think these are some of the issues that the concept of the super soldier is trying to address, the problems it's trying to minimize, like the fact that we don't like killing each other or that we get tired. But when Caleb suggested that we look into this topic, I did wonder to myself, what actually do we mean by super soldier? So I had to go look it up. Like what? Because I had this sense of what a super soldier was, and I discovered that it was impartial at best, that there were a lot of other aspects to being a super soldier. So maybe since we're doing this kind of work of just setting up the show, Nathan, what is a super soldier? Well, it's, it's a human that is augmented in some way to make them survive better in this hellish environment that we've described, and also make them better at making a better hell in that environment that we've described. They've got to survive more, and they've got to kill more. I think there are a couple of ways in which which historically and also today we are trying to augment these soldiers. Yeah. Well, I mean, for example, we can do it with physical armor, and we're going to be talking about that with ideas of exoskeletons to to build like a hybrid human machine. Well, and that's that whole Iron Man concept that I was referencing earlier or other movies like Starship Trooper or Avatar, these exoskeletons where people kind of sit inside things that look like, I don't know, transformer robots or something and they can move them around and they're stronger and just maybe more resilient in the battlefield. And also more capable of violence. Right. You could also look at something like Captain America, who in the stories is created through like a kind of a super steroid. So drugs, basically. Drugs. And we'll be looking at lots of examples of drugs being used in order to try to generate a more efficient, strong soldier. Okay. You could look at something like working on the animal itself. Could you genetically manipulate us to make us just a better animal for warfare? We'll look at one terrible awful example of that okay and there's a fourth method which harkens back to our very first episode ever on stargate eight episodes ago yeah exactly what if you harnessed the hidden capacity of our psychic abilities right i mean that would be the ultimate in soldiers right 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 to create a psychic soldier a psychic super soldier or maybe Another project that we looked at earlier on in MK Ultra was maybe the potential of a kind of a brainwashed soldier who could, though, nonetheless, you know, be very strong, capable, and, and maybe especially effective because they don't know that they're the assassin, the yeah, sniper agent. Exactly. But, no, we'll deal with that fourth one in a future episode. Exactly. Today we'll deal with those first three. Yeah, well, and especially maybe the exoskeleton and drugs. Yeah, and we'll touch on the genetic thing. Yeah, we'll just do a little... Because I came across this terrible story, right? and I need to share it. Okay. So what should we start with, though? 
we're going to start with something surprising. And that is this idea that it's part of the motivation for wanting this. Okay. And it's that we're not great killers. Okay. So this might come as a surprise to all of us, especially the pessimistic ones like you and I. Mm. But it does seem as though human beings have a very difficult time murdering other human beings. Mm -hmm. Now, there has been a, a big study that was done during World War II. There was a general, a general marshal, went by Slam Marshall. Okay. Great nickname. And he did a survey of soldier responses to the battlefield. What it, happens when you put a soldier in the battlefield? What do they actually do? Regardless of their training, right. what actually happens? Okay. And what he finds, and he publishes this in his book, Men Against Fire, he claims that 75% of the soldiers never fired their weapons when they were in an active war zone. Wow. Because this is World War II and there were a lot of non-professional soldiers operating in World War II. These are, what I mean by this is sort of There was like a lot of conscripts. Conscripts yeah. who, you know, like, the types like Nathan and I, right, who, who physically are capable of holding a gun, but, you know, haven't and don't want to, but at some point we get called up anyway. Is it those types, or is it also professional soldiers like the Navy SEALs that I imagine and... Well, the people that he would have been looking at would have been a combination of the two. Okay. I mean, that's an excellent question. And it's the sort of question that actually, to be honest, Slam Marshall wasn't that good at asking. His methodology was flawed. And, and I mean, his findings were probably not necessarily that accurate. But it almost doesn't matter that they weren't that accurate because they were so influential. Okay. So regardless if he's right or not, it still has this massive impact on the American military and their desire to create a better soldier. Okay. His argument was... We just have an innate tendency, which is then reinforced by civilization, not to kill other humans. Right. Okay. Which sounds like good news to us, I guess. You know, biologically, and I generally shy away from these types of arguments, but from a genetic, biological, evolutionary perspective, there's a logic to this. Because what you see in the animal kingdom is the same thing. Animals, unless they're doing it for hunting, obviously, which point you do need to kill your prey, but if it's within the same species, there is a resistance um, to actually kill the other because it's a waste of resources. It puts you in danger and it there's no obvious purpose to it. If you can show dominance, you can beat up your rival, get the mate, whatever the thing is, that's usually enough. And then you walk away and, and then that's fine. Yeah, a lot of battle in the animal kingdom turns out to be pretty symbolic. Yeah. Like, it's like, I'm bigger than you, okay, you, you know, you'll back off. Yeah. There isn't, I mean, obviously there are animals that kill each other in battles in yeah. the wild, but it isn't as common as you would expect. I mean, as you were sitting down beside the shrimp farm, two lobsters right. had themselves a small scuffle. It was cute to watch uh, Nathan disciplining his lobsters. Yeah. Told them to stop. Stop it, you guys. <laughs> but it was, again, largely symbolic. They wave their yeah. claws around. They, yeah. you know, they take a couple shots and then they back off. So Marshall was arguing, oh, well, we've got this innate tendency. For him, it wasn't good news. For him, it was bad news. Right. For him, it was, this is a bad quality. We need to come up with ways to rectify this to make better killing machines. Yep. Okay. And what did he come up with? Well, it had a lot to do with training. It had a lot to do with... I mean, I'll give you one simple uh, example. You train somebody to shoot at a target, like a bullseye target, you can get a person who's very good at shooting bullseye targets. Uh, Make the targets look like people. Right, okay. Don't train them to shoot bullseyes. Yeah. Train them to shoot the human body. Right, okay. Now, as I said, there have been a lot of people who have looked at this afterwards and said, well, you know, war is actually very complicated. 
you're not necessarily in a situation, even in an active battlefield, where firing your weapon is useful or even warranted. Especially in World War II, where the battlefields were, were pretty spread out. Like, you want to wait. You don't want to waste ammunition. You don't want to give away your position. Right. So there are so many reasons why these soldiers may not have been firing. But like I said, regardless of his methodology, this was a very influential book. And the U.S. military took it very seriously and were like, okay, clearly there are some weaknesses with human beings. We need to figure out how to make them better killers. But even though this was in World War II, this idea of sort of working on the psychology of the human being to make them a better killer goes back ages. Yeah. And in fact, the first example we'll talk about comes from the 11th century. Okay. So let's go back. All right. So this comes to us from Persia, what's now uh, considered Iran. We're talking about the legendary group of the assassins. Okay. And when I say legendary, they did actually exist in reality. They right. were a political force. They were a military force. But it's, I mean, it's long enough ago that it's kind of difficult to separate the truth from the PR from the slander. Okay. This is something that we encounter a lot. But what we do know for sure is that the assassins were a group of warriors who used infiltration and subterfuge and misdirection to carry out difficult killings. In fact, of course, this is where the term assassin comes from. Oh, okay. So they exist between the 11th and 13th centuries, and they were a real powerful force in Persia. And very briefly, to let you know where they came from, they were a religious group. But to understand how they fit in with their religion, you have to do, and this is going to be hard for you because you know too much about it. Okay. This is always a danger of asking somebody who knows a lot about something to explain something. And so I'm already worried. But could you explain to everybody very quickly what a religious schism is? No. No, I didn't think so. Okay, I'll try that. Um, generally, caught me off guard here. You should have given this to me as homework, and I could pare down my very long answer to something succinct. But a religious schism is when there is an internal conflict, usually around some kind of doctrinal issue. But it might not necessarily even be that. It might be about whatever, organizing monastic rules, who, who knows? But usually it's around some kind of doctrinal issue where one group believes one thing and another group believes something else. And because... Split up. Exactly. Because this stuff matters, and because often it matters what the group believes, not just what individuals believe, these groups see, them, see that they're in a kind of irreconcilable conflict and they split. But it usually doesn't stop there. If it stopped there, it'd be kind of okay. You would get the phenomenon you get in Protestant Christianity in the United States, which is just like thousands of split different after churches. Split after Ex split exactly. After split. But they don't tend to come back and try and annihilate the, the group. But that is often part of the religious schism, is that there is a this conflict spills into a, a bloody conflict. Um, it can last generations. There's that early one in Islam between, uh, what is it, the... Shiite and the Sunni. Which, it, which goes back to relations of the Prophet. So it was, um, I should have looked this up, you should have given it to me as homework. Well, the basic idea is you're it's trying to figure out, okay, so what is the genealogy of the Prophets? Right. And then, Do we follow this one or that one? Exactly. And then you get a schism. And by the 11th century, when the assassins showed up, there had been that schism within Islam that resulted in the formation of the Shiite and the Sunni religions. And so then we're going to follow the Shiite 
uh, side of that. Okay. There was a schism within Shiism that resulted in Ismailism. Ah, uh, okay. Now, Ismailism was influenced by a lot of uh, these concepts that we've talked about a lot recently. Neoplatonism. Oh. Manichaeanism. Oh, interesting. Gnosticism. Okay. So some pretty interesting stuff. But then there was a schism within Ismailism that resulted in the creation of the Nizarites. Okay. And this is where we can stop, at the All Nizarites. Right. So in the 11th century, the Nizarites had a leader named Hassan e. Sabah. And Sabah was a very educated man. He'd been trained at Al-Azhar University in Cairo in math and astronomy and medicine, architecture and philosophy. And also, I mean, it's just neat to think about how long we've had universities. Yeah. Like, that's kind of an amazing thing in itself. <laughs> Funny that you put we there. Uh, because we... By we, have, I mean the humans. Right, exactly. Because <laughs> most humans did not, yeah. but some did. Yeah, and certainly in the Middle <laughs> East, there, there, was a, there was a real center of learning. Right. Uh, it was, yeah. it was, there were a lot of universities and things. So Sabah gets educated there. He becomes leader of the Nizarites. He moves into his palace, from which, according to stories, he basically never emerges again. Oh my God, this is perfect. This is like my fantasy right there. Yeah, this is, yeah, this is how you would want to live. He goes up onto the roof sometimes. Exactly. And that's about it. <laughs> like this guy. So he's got some radical ideas about the nature of reality, which isn't surprising for somebody who has Gnostic influences. Right. We've okay. talked about the Gnostics and their view on existence and, and God and things like that. What's the bumper sticker version? The bumper sticker version for, for Sabah is the phrase, nothing is true, everything is permitted. Ooh. Yeah, this is good. It's good stuff. Now, the history... Of course, is basically a centuries-long game of broken telephone. Okay. So we can't be sure whether he actually ever said that. I mean, you're going to find accounts who say it was his last words. Okay. This is a general rule. Last words are never as good or pithy as people write down. Yeah, surely. Like, if, if you find out somebody's last words were like, oh, it hurts, it's probably <laughs> true. Yeah. But if you find out their last words were... Oh, alas, in these last moments, I find myself throwing my memories back to... No, that's not what happened. Gertrude Stein's last words, apparently, either the wallpaper goes or I go. Wasn't that um, Oscar Wilde? That was Gertrude Stein. It was probably neither of them. Yeah, exactly. The, 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 exactly. Both of their last words were probably, oh, it hurts. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, so, <laughs> but regardless if he actually said it or not, it does seem kind of appropriate for his philosophy, this idea okay. of nothing is true, everything is permitted. So he extends his influence out, even though he never leaves the castle himself, and wages war against the other sects, and also, of course, because of the time period, the Christian crusaders who were invading the Middle East. Right. Through the use of his assassins, not through massed armies, okay. but through these sort of like sneaky ninja-style okay. uh, warriors. And so the idea of the assassin, people also disagree about the origin of this word. I mean, his name is Hassan. So does it come from his name, Hassan, Assassins, Assassins? Does it come from the Arabic word Has, to destroy? Mm. Uh, does it come from the word Assassa, to lay snares? All of these kind of make sense. Mm -hmm. Or look at the desk in front of you in front of the shrimp farm, and you'll see a small jar. It looks like maybe it contains contact lenses. I see it. Yeah. Take that out. Open it up. All right. That's exciting. Ooh. And tell I me know. what it is. I know what this is. Hmm. I mean, <laughs> we're in Canada. It's fine. It's fine, right? This is this is hash. That is hash. 
which I bought at a government store. This is Nathan's hash. Which I bought in Canada legally. <laughs> I mean, within, within literally within Not... five minutes walk of the bunker, there are nine storefronts in which you could buy hash. So then the question is, does assassin come from hashashin, mm. hash smoker? Well, and that connection seems rather dubious until you connect the fact that these assassins used hash to do their dirty work. Now, this made sense to me at first because I have seen the 1930s documentary Reefer Madness. Right. And I know from watching that documentary that smoking cannabis products can lead you to play the piano very quickly. <laughs> it can lead you to jump out of windows. Right. It can lead you to murder people. Well, it's, I was thinking this when we were getting ready for this episode, like how important cultural assumptions about drug use are and how the stories change, and how today the associations that we make with hash or marijuana use is lazy, you know, can't be bothered. Snacking. Yeah, can't be bothered to get off the couch. I mean, there's this concept of couch lock. You, you just sort Watching of... Watching Doctor Who episodes. Yeah, you just... And you don't, you're, you're not motivated to do anything. Right, so how would hashish turn someone into a super soldier? Well, I guess there were a lot of different cultural connotations with this. And yet, what's, what's interesting, I'll, I'll tell you a couple stories that kind of go some way to explain it. Okay. So the first one comes from Marco Polo. So oh, already the, we have to the say... The Explorer. The Explorer. So already we have to say, okay, do we trust this story? Not necessarily. Right. Trusting Explorer stories is not necessarily the best way to get to the truth. So what Marco Polo said was that new recruits to the assassins would be given hashish. Right. Until they passed out. Okay. At which point they would be moved into a room as they were unconscious that was done up to resemble paradise. Oh, I've heard this. Complete man. with yes, wine yes, yes. and food and beautiful women. Right. And they'd spend like four or five days there just being, having the time of their lives. Right. And they would also assume that they had died. Okay. It's like, oh, I've died and I've gone to paradise. Right. And then you smoke them into oblivion again. Oh. You take them outside of the room oh. and you wake them up and you say, well, you died briefly. You were given a glimpse of the paradise that awaits you if you're killed in my service. Mm. And so you could see how one of the main things about being a soldier is a fear of death. If you're being told, oh no, you're going to go to a really nice room full of wine and things, mm. then you'd be like, huh, maybe I'm not as afraid to die as I was before. So we have ideology backed up by a certain kind of drug-induced stupor. Yeah. And then this provides a kind of motivation and rationale to... Yeah. Do the master's bidding. Yeah, not only do you want to be in the service of this guy, but you also don't mind if you get killed in the service of this guy, if we are to believe the story. Right. I'll give you another one. This one comes from Sheikh Abdur Rahman ben Ubekur al-Jariri. That's a name. Now, what he argued, and this was from maybe a couple hundred years after the assassins. Okay. So he argued that a follower of Hassan would be taken aside and said, listen, buddy, I need your help. Can you do a special project for me? And the guy would say yes. And then they would dig a deep hole in the ground, and the volunteer would stand in it, and then they would fill that hole with sand so that only the man's head was visible. Mm. And then you would pour blood around his neck. Mm -hmm. And so to the casual observer, you don't know the hole's there. You don't know it's filled with sand. It just oh. looks like there's a severed head on the ground. Right. And then he would bring in the other new recruits. <laughs> and the severed head would be asked, hey, listen, buddy. You had your head cut off, but I'll do you a favor. I'll bring you back to life on Earth. Or 
you can go back to paradise. What should you want? Right. And of course, the severed head was like, oh, no, no, life on earth, please send me back to paradise. It's yeah. great. I can hardly wait. Yeah. And then all the recruits watching this would be like, oh, this is amazing. Right. If we get our heads cut off, we're going to go to paradise. So then they all file out. And then that original volunteer, obviously... Gets their head cut off. Gets their head right, cut off. Right, right, right. And then you can show the severed head and be like, look, he, he went back to paradise. Right. Okay, so it's difficult to say whether either story is true. Uh, although we do have another late 12th century story from Henri, the Count of Champagne, who was visiting an assassin stronghold in Syria and was amazed that the fighters, the assassins, would just willingly throw themselves off towers to their death if their commander asked them to. Hmm. So while these stories may or may not be true, there does seem to be something to the idea that these guys had been convinced not to fear death and to do the bidding of their commanders. And the assassins were extremely effective and feared until the middle of the 13th century when, because of stirrups mostly, like the rest of Asia, they get overrun by the Mongol armies. Oh, that's interesting. So there's, um, they're relying on a certain kind of what ends up for them being military tech, which is this drug, which is a cornerstone of their military organization for mm -hmm. these assassins to recruit them, to maintain the ideology. And also, my understanding is they keep using this in battle, don't they? Or well, I mean, again, it, it becomes very difficult to separate okay. the truth from the fiction. I mean, the Nazari in general were referred to as hashashin in a derogatory sense. Right, okay. Because it was a way of being like, ah, you bunch of hash smokers. Right, right, right. The druggies. Yeah, yeah exactly. Okay. And so, I mean, how many times have we had this problem when we're trying to look at history and it's like, are we reading the work of the enemies of this group? Right, of course, yeah. Because they're going to sell us a bad bill of goods. Are we reading the PR of this group? Right. In which case they might be exaggerating what they do. So it, it is difficult to say. But... The use of, of hash, it does seem mixed in with the sort of idea of showing them a kind of paradise. Right, 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 right. And okay. then that, that's a heck of a way to make a super soldier. Sure. A soldier who's not afraid to die right. is a better soldier in some ways. Yeah, no, that, that makes a lot of sense. And I have a very brief, I mean, it's not nearly as elaborate as, as your story, but I have a, a, another example from history where we have the use of drugs to 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 augment a soldier's performance and these are the berserkers we have the english word to go berserk apparently comes from this group of old norse men these are scandinavians basically in the i think i have it as the 7th to 10th century but anyway point is long time ago kind of viking types and there are accounts of them getting really in a big frenzy before a battle. And there have been theories. Now, it's not clear. How is it that they got themselves into this frenzied state? Was it unusual? And was it maybe a drug-induced state? And of course, the theories vary. And some people say no. And some people say we don't know. There is, though, a theory that says, yeah, this, this may indeed have been a drug-induced state. And if you follow that trajectory, there's one of two drugs that are often suggested as being uh, the culprits. One is simply an excessive amount of alcohol. Yeah, which I could see that. Is generally, it's funny that we don't, in certainly in Canadian popular culture, tend to classify that as a drug because we have this dis this weird distinction between these sort of less mainstream drugs 
from cannabis to opioids to other things. And then the like, you know, sanctioned by mainstream culture drugs, which is essentially alcohol and used to be tobacco as well. Caffeine. And caffeine, which we seem to not consider drugs. But either way, alcohol is a drug. And I used to always delight in, in bringing up this point, is responsible for many, many more drug deaths than any of the other drugs combined. Oh, yeah. Alcohol in your society is a bit of a catastrophe. <laughs> it's a huge catastrophe. And we say that um, both with full glasses of beer in front of us right now. Mine was full. It's, it's not anymore. Half full glasses of beer in front of us right now. That's right. You know, a lot of violent altercations today occur because of alcohol. I mean, yeah. if you g walk down the, the party centers of town... College uh, Street. Two or three o'clock in the morning, if you're seeing a fight... That's probably an alcohol-induced fight. Yeah. And uh, lowers inhibitions and can increase aggression and aggressive behavior. And Minimizes so, the feeling of pain. Yep. So that's not an altogether bizarre theory of how the berserkers went into this kind of rage that seemed to give them superhuman strength and triumph in the battlefield. Maybe more interesting theory, just because of the status of the drug not being as well known to many Canadians, is hallucinogenic mushrooms, which would have been available to Northern Europeans. Maybe even ergot, um, oh. which being the poison bread, but specifically the article I'm basing this on focused mostly on hallucinogenic mushrooms. And again, the idea being that these warriors, I guess they're not soldiers in the technical sense, these warriors get high, probably within some kind of religious context, and then are able to tap into more energy and also feel less pain. I think when we talk about drugs, those are the two avenues that people are looking to exploit. On the one hand, you are able to last longer, you're able to be stronger than your enemy. And then on the other hand, you just feel less and mm -hmm. so you're able to do more so those are the berserkers like the uh hashishin i mean it's not exactly clear to what extent and how and 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 what is modern conjecture but i think both of these examples we brought up are just there to point to the fact that there is a historical precedent to all of this. Yeah. That the kinds of stuff that we did in the 20th and now the 21st century is maybe not that um, surprising or unusual, and in fact just kind of develops naturally out of this logic of warfare. Ah, uh, the logic of warfare. But look, when when our listener asked us to talk about this, I'm sure he did not want us to stop in the 11th century. No, so let's so, press on to the 20th century. Okay. All right, so... <laughs> because that's where the story, especially around drugs, really gets going. We invent new ones. We start using them as official policy within various different armies. And we can really measure the success or or not, I guess, of, of using them. But we're going to briefly... We're going to get back to drugs. Oh. We're going to step away from drugs for a second to tell you just an awful story. Oh, okay. In fact, normally we try to give as much details as we can on the podcast. I'm actually going to leave a lot of stuff out. Okay. Because this story was grim. According to an article in The Scotsman in 2005 newspaper, Joseph Stalin ordered the creation of an army of half-ape, half-human super soldiers in the 1920s. Oh, goodness. Okay. According so, to the article, he said, I want a new, invincible human being, insensitive to pain, resistant and indifferent about the quality of food they eat. 
Now we're in the 20th century, we can really mess with stuff. And so Stalin wants to create ape-human hybrids. So this would be the other category of super soldier, the genetically bred or altered super soldier. Well, I mean, here's the thing. There's a general rule when we do research. We have to watch out for weasel words like, it was said that. Right. Because then you're like, Some people who? believe. Yeah, some people believe. Like, who said it? When did they say it? Who did they say it to? Who overheard them saying right. it? And when I was looking into that Stalin quote, yeah. because it was believable, it's Stalin. I was like, well, I believe this could happen. Right. But when I was looking into the quote, I couldn't find any evidence for it. Just people saying it was said that Stalin ordered this or Stalin reportedly ordered this. Right. Or it's a claim that when it's sourced, it goes back to that same article in the Scotsman again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I thought, ooh, this maybe this didn't even happen. That would be nice. Right. Unfortunately. It's probably true that Stone didn't say that. Okay. In fact, it's probably true that Stone didn't even order this. Okay. But it did happen. Oh. The human ape experiment did happen. The man tasked with this experiment was Russian physiologist Ilya Ivanov. And Ivanov had been experimenting with artificial insemination of farm animals since the late 19th century. And in the early 20th century, published papers about the possibility of an ape-human hybrid. This is why I don't think that it was one of Stalin's ideas, because it predates Stalin. Okay. He's already working on this stuff. It predates the Soviet Union, even. Mm. And so it's likely the Stalin quote was added to the story later to make it, you know, like a more appropriate story in some ways. Now, Ivanov claimed that this experiment, making half-human, half-apes, would shed light into the scientific origins of humans. And actually, the American Association for the Advancement of Atheism offered him $100,000 if he was successful. <laughs> and this is where it gets really... There's no good guys in this one. Yeah. Because this is a terrible experiment. The American Association for the Advancement of Atheism was a terrible organization. White supremacist, okay. like all of the lousy 20th... Uh, century stuff they had. Meanwhile, the KKK, who also sucked, they were against this experiment because they thought that it showed that humans were going to be like closer to animals and further from God. Mm. So both sides of this experiment kind of suck. Everybody sucks here except the apes. The yeah, apes I was going to say, the apes are the only ones. Yeah, who... the apes are fine. So in 1924, Ivanov was funded by the Soviet government. This was an official program under Stalin to travel to what was then called French Guinea, now the Republic of Guinea, to carry out his experiments. So first he tried to impregnate three female chimpanzees with human sperm. And I've read descriptions of these experiments, and I'm not going to describe them. I had to go for like a long, slow, sad walk after researching this. This is one of those things that it made me want to travel back in time and start throwing hands. Mm. Which, you know what? Any, any experiments on animals are generally pretty nasty. Makes you want to throw hands. And humans, too. Mm. And so the experiments were unsuccessful. And so he switches tactics and decides to impregnate human women with chimpanzee sperm. So if I can just interject my little knowledge of like grade 10 biology, the reason it's unsuccessful is by definition... A species is a different species when it can no longer reproduce with the thing that it used to be part of. Right. right? So how do you know that, I don't know, well, give me an example that, because, you know, I've already come to the end of my grade 10 biology knowledge. Is it dogs and wolves? Are they, can they still breed or not breed? Well, I mean, it gets, it's actually a bit trickier than you learned in grade 10. Well, I was going to keep it, though, at grade 10 stuff, uh, because I'm like, haha, you see, you can't do this stuff. Because what happens if you breed a horse and a donkey? Those are two different species. But, but you, still get, you still get an animal. Well, okay, but 
So one of the things was but that the animals that you get is a mule, right? And a mule can no cannot reproduce. reproduce, right? So that's the thing. You you're making you can make an animal with two different species. Sometimes you can make a liger or a tigon, half lion, half tiger. Okay, I kind of want to see that. They are amazing. You yeah, should. It seems we'll, kind of cool. Yeah, we'll totally look at that after we record this. And so, like, maybe, maybe it's possible, but it shouldn't be done. Right. He was originally planning on doing the second phase where he impregnates human uh, women with chimpanzee sperm. He was going to do this without the knowledge or consent of local women in Guinea. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I kind of goes without saying. I mean, I don't know. Oh, the 1920s. But after originally agreeing to the experiment, the governor of French Guinea was like, wait, what? And changed his mind and said, no, you can't get out of the country. Get right. out of here with that. And remember that we're doing this or he's doing this in order to at some point create super soldiers, right? Like that's the, that's the end goal here. Well, that, that is one of the potential end goals because you would end up with like, like chimps are so strong. Yeah. We are so not as strong as chimps. Yeah. Even though they're tiny. So then he goes back to Russia, where he finds a human woman who volunteers for the experiment. The past is a wild place. But Ivanov's only male chimpanzee died before the experiment could take place. Now, because Ivanov is alive during the Stalin regime, you've never heard this story, but I bet you you can tell what's going to happen to him. He's alive during Stalin in Russia, so what happens to him? He goes to the gulag. He, exactly. He goes, and you'd had no idea, you didn't know about this guy, but that's just... That's what happens. That's just the predictability of Soviet Russia. He goes to the gulags. Stalin eventually pardons him. Okay. But before he could be released, he died in the gulag. Oh. So the great ape-human experiment fizzles out before it can really get going. Fortunately. Yeah. Fortunately, Fortunately before the CIA hear about it and decide uh, that there's like an ape-human super soldier hybrid gap. Yeah. We got we to gotta start making those. Uh. So now we've hit the 45-minute mark of this episode, and we've only just scratched the surface of this topic. It's not surprising, unfortunately, since when it comes to weapons of war, the ingenuity and innovation of human beings knows no bounds. We've done an introduction to the idea of the super soldier and looked at some examples from the hazy fog of ancient history, but we need to discuss some of the more recent attempts to make better killing machines out of humans. Particularly the work done in Nazi Germany with methamphetamines and the Super Troop Project by DARPA in the late 20th century to create an Iron Man-style exoskeleton. So we'll return to those in a future episode, and consider this episode as a way of dipping our toe into these very murky and dangerous waters.